So do you do letterpress with your um, your chat books and stuff like that? Um, not yet. You I... should come to Lubbock. We have a letterpress studio. Really? The poet Curtis Bauer, he teaches here. He's way deep into letterpress. We have like, one, two, three, I think three or four different period real antique letterpresses. Ooh. They have like a lithograph machine. It's it's pretty, it's not my thing, but it's amazing. Hello friends, and welcome to So Poetry. Uh, this is a new season and a new episode, and I'm excited to welcome you all back for season four. Um, and I'm also very, very excited to introduce the guest for this episode, uh, Jasmine Bailey, uh, who is a tremendous poet. Um, I recently bought both of your books, and I have enjoyed them very, very much. Thank um, you. But do you want to you introduce yourself and say a little bit about what you're up to? Sure. Um... Well, I am currently in a PhD program for creative writing. So as a result, my work has kind of diversified. <laughs> but as you mentioned, I do have two collections of poetry and a chapbook of poetry. Um, and now I also work on literary translation. Um, I just completed a collection of poems by the Argentine poet Silvina Lopez Nadine. She lives in New York. She um, is an editor for Ugly Duckling Press, and um, she has three collections of poetry. I translated her second collection. It hasn't been published yet, so if anybody listening um, <laughs> is in need of a, a poetry collection to print, um, so I do a translation from Spanish to English, and um, I have also begun writing nonfiction essays in the last Ooh, couple of years. That's so, exciting. Yeah, so I do um, lyric essays, very lyric essays. Um, so yeah, I'm working in at least three genres. Sometimes I'm pressed into writing critical essays as well, but I really do. I can't say that I enjoy it, and <laughs> I totally dread the process of revision on critical work so so far i haven't published anything critical since i was in college which was a very long time ago so that's what i'm working on now and um yeah and and anyone listening will probably notice a lot of strange sounds in the background because i have a one-year-old who's playing with a bell today <laughs> <laughs> um so how I get this is a maybe a weird question to start off with, but in your experience, like, do you, do you, well, maybe, maybe, let me phrase this another way. Do you see any sort of um, relationship between or overlap between like poetry and lyric nonfiction essays? Yes, I think um, the logic is similar but you have a lot more room in prose. Um, so sometimes when I wanna write about something I consider quite ineffable, I like to write about it in prose because I feel like, okay, I can just, I don't have to worry, I don't have to scrutinize every word. Mm -hmm. And of course you do eventually have to scrutinize every word, I think, but 
in the it's it's kind of freeing to just be like, okay, I'm just gonna write this out and try and get around this idea. Um, but the logic is similar in that you are kind of rejecting a lot of the structures that readers rely on to get their bearings, right? So like between two paragraphs or two sections, there may be apparently no connection. Mm -hmm. There has to eventually be a connection, but that element of surprise or that element of juxtaposition is always valuable mm -hmm. in a lyric essay. I also think generally, um, Lyric essays, the, the language is very lyric, as the language in poetry, I think, ought to be, um, though not everybody agrees with that. Um, <laughs> and I think the main difference is that in lyric essay, you are, you do care about the sentence more. Like, your sentence should be a more um, concrete unit. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't willy-nilly have a lot of non-sentences. You can have some, right? But yeah. But I think poetry doesn't have allegiance to the sentence, and and prose does, and that's a that's a difference. But otherwise, I think they can be very similar in terms of the logic, how things move, and in terms of the language. Yeah, I I 100% agree. When when I was working through um, my MFA, uh, I think because there were fewer poets and nonfiction writers. Um, and more fiction writers when in our thesis, like our final year in thesis class, we were broken up between like the, the prose writers and then the poetry nonfiction writers, um, mm. which, like I said, I think is because of a numbers thing. But I would also like to think that it was there is a sort of implicit understanding that like poetry and nonfiction occupied a space that was a little bit closer to each other than um, poet like poetry and, and prose for sure but also sort of like nonfiction in prose. And the way that I've always thought about it is that with, uh, with poetry and nonfiction, um, the, like the emotional truth or the emotional transference is the thing that's important. And so as opposed to a prose thing, which is like the story is the thing, like the plot, mm -hmm. the, like the whatever, whatever thing that you're telling is important, whereas in nonfiction and poetry, it's the sort of like, what is the, um, what is this piece making you feel? And like, how does this, or how is that connecting and what is being evoked from that? Um, so like, like you said, I think that, um, the reason you can, that you can have some freedom in like sections or sentences and, and groupings of how you're telling, uh, or how you're writing or crafting a nonfiction piece is because like, if you have the emotional kind of through line, you can play around with that other stuff or you can, you can have, like you said, like sections that when you encounter them seemingly like they have no, nothing like narratively in a sense to, to deal with the, uh, in relation to each other. But at the core, there is a sort of like emotional, like color or tone or theme wise. That is like, you can find that, that thread through it. Mm -hmm. Um, in New York, I feel like in both poetry and uh, like lyrical essays, it's more um, you can be more elliptical. Like you don't have to you don't have to to tell a story or tell a thing in a straight line. You can kind of take tangents or routes and you know yeah. kind of maneuver around. Um, but it's it's interesting that I feel like most of the poets that I know that write another genre tend to write 
nonfiction, usually in like some sort of lyrical capacity versus writing in like, you know, hard and fast actual prose, like short stories or, or novels? Um, well, I think you're right that um, the main concern in nonfiction, like poetry, is the I voice and the, the experience, the self experience. Mm -hmm. And that um, in, you're right in fiction, it's it's the story and fiction fiction can be impressionistic, but we like, totally expect that from um, nonfiction or poetry because it's personal experience, not necessarily a story. And then story plays into it. I would also, I mean, I would say that um, making things up that are plausible and compelling is a very special and difficult skill and only certain people have it, mm -hmm. right? It's not the same as being a good poet or a nonfiction writer. So like <laughs> I do, fiction is, is not my favorite genre. I, I to, I don't write it at all and I enjoy reading it, but it's, it's not my favorite genre, but I have a lot of respect for, for fiction writers. And I do think that it's a terrific skill and a lot of us don't practice it because we're not, <laughs> we can't, you know? Right. Yeah. There's it's like, that we can't do, you know? Yeah. But like in with, with fiction writers, you are like part of your task is, is the creation and population of a world that is believable, like a world that might look similar or parallel to our own but is something that is like foreign or alien that you have to um, and that people care about right yeah that like it's something that you that not only has to capture someone's attention of like oh this is an interesting thing but also that, like you said like that there has to build in some sort of emotional attachment to it um whereas most of the poetry that i tend to read and i think the vast majority of like the lyrical essay nonfictiony stuff that i read is very much a like I'm pulling I'm having experiences in this the world that we sort of all collectively share and I'm pulling out those experiences and trying to craft some sort of you know interesting like view of it or interesting presentation of it and, and giving it to you know mm -hmm. like the reader or, or a wider audience um, yeah so I think I think that there is there's much less distance that poets and nonfiction writers have to cover in order to to find their material because it's it's sort of you know it's just it's out there you just you have to yeah. you have to be able to i think that it, it might take a more cultivated eye like a photographer be able to look at something and see like oh, how can i frame this or how you know like if i move or I, I reposition my my perspective, I can capture the light coming in through this way as opposed to like, I now have to sit down and like create this whole this whole <laughs> new thing that someone has to care about. Otherwise, they're, they won't continue reading, <laughs> reading my work. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way, that like that, that skill. Well, when you when you were younger, um, like kid, kid age, were did you have like when you played with like if you had toys or when you played was it did you rely heavily on your imagination to like create new scenarios or was it like um i guess but i think i mapped onto existing stories a lot um for example you know i'd see some movie and then we would be i would i and the trees would be characters in the movie mm -hmm. or um you know I had Barbies and the Barbies had regular kind of domestic lives <laughs> that like, you know, maybe they were 
uh, going to go on a date or going to go on a boat or something, but it was, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I was making up quite amazing stories. I, I also wrote a story when I was like a freshman in high school and I wrote, I think I wrote two, probably the only two I've ever written. And both of them were really totally based on real events. Right, you know, I yeah. just fictionalized them. Um, I, th- I know that like fiction writers say, and it's true that like, well, we have all this freedom because we can change detail, you know, we can work based on life, but change details when life is boring, mm-hmm. right? And that that would be a benefit, but ultimately, you know, for me, my my imagination is, um, I guess, more language based or or like perspective, as you were saying, in terms of how how do things look to me. What, how do we compare? I think, I mean, one of the main things poets do is find connections between things that other people don't see, mm-hmm. but those connections are insightful, yeah. right? That's what they're for. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm good at that. I think I enjoy that. But that's the type of imagination I have. It's not so much like, what if this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my husband loves, like, sci-fi and fantasy and stuff like that, right? Like he Or like... um. Margaret Atwood, like the handmaid's tale. What mm-hmm. if this? And I, I don't like things like that. I'm like, <laughs> it's bad enough as this. <laughs> yeah. Which I, it is, I know? think, I think that that might be an, an interesting distinction that with, with prose writing, this is in generalized with prose writing that it's, it's potentially more a creation through like Genesis that they are, that they're, like there are new things that are being created that are like new that that have to be created whereas with with poetry it might be more and this is again generalized creation through like synthesis that there are new things that are being created but it's how you sort of mosaic and and cohere things that are already existing into like you know, I have A and I have B and they both exist, but if I put them together in an interesting way, then it's, it's something new, but it's like, I'm drawing material out from things that are already existent and, you know, like just sort of knitting them together and presenting them as this, this new thing. Well, that is almost a perfect description of the work that I've been doing the last couple of years in terms of my poetry has really been kind of about thematically about um mostly stories from the hebrew bible and yeah i'm just really kind of obsessed with these stories like from genesis Mm -hmm. or um or the book of daniel or samuel and uh, esther and just love like inhabiting and dwelling in these stories in poems but um you know to articulate the project. I mean, I'm not sure when you're doing it, you don't really like kind of know what you're doing, but you know, you're obsessed with it and you have something that you want to point out. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm kind of recasting those stories in a way that highlights things that I feel are um, minimized in the, the actual, you know, the texts that we have um, mm-hmm. or in the way that people think about those stories. Um, so I really, yeah, I love working with things that already exist and just kind of manipulating them to show other sides of them or to kind of show their shadows as opposed to like to, to do um, a relief of them or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, that, 
So are you are you keeping the uh, I guess the setting and the context of of the poems in the world of like the stories as they appear in like the Hebrew Bible? Like is it is it stuff that would occur like you would situate yourself in time back in those times, or are you are you like bringing them forward? No, it's more like I as a contemporary woman am reading I'm casting my imagination back okay. on these stories um and sort of retelling them okay uh, from my own perspective I guess um but not really inhabiting things too much I guess um okay. have have you yeah. have you read Ann Carson's uh, the autobiography of red I just started it recently so you were very influential to me because you um you were reading Ann Carson when we met. We were at BSC together, and you told me how much you liked her work. And since then, I've read several of her books, and she has become, like, one of my favorite writers. And I think now that I'm working in so many genres, she's really um, yeah influential to me in terms of, like, hybridity. But, um, yeah, I, I worked... Like I wrote pretty extensively about her her gender of sound essay for my um Ooh. for my PhD, and um yeah I love like I love Eros the Bittersweet. I, so her like version of nonfiction, you know, that's kind of half scholarly, half poetry and impressionistic. I really love. I think it's very authentic. I think if you are a scholarly person and you're also a poet, you're going to be practicing both at the same time. Um. But her, yeah, her glass irony in God is to me like a terrific, her, a terrific. The the first time that I read uh, her her glass essay, I was like, I don't. It it felt like it was a. So I use I use this metaphor or I guess this this image a lot for things, but it seems to be one of the most apt ones. It'd be like if you're if you're walking down a hallway in a house that you've lived in for the, all of your life. And like you walk down this hallway every day and every day it's the same, like two doors. And then one day you walk down it and there's another door that yeah. is just there. And you get the sense that it's always been there. You just, you've never, it's never like, you've never caught it in the right way or it's never been the right time. And then you just, you're like, Oh shit, there's this whole other wing of this house that I've, I never knew existed. And when I, when I read, um, in a, in a not as impactful or not as total way as I as when I encountered haiku for like the really encountered haiku for the first time. But reading uh, her glass essay, it was just like there's this space. It's like I absolutely had no idea that this place ever existed, and like it's here now. And I'm like, this is <laughs> oh god. Like, what were you gonna say about autobiography of Red? Oh, that that the the way that you're describing the work that you're doing now, that's the, one of the first things that, that came to mind, or at least like Ann Carson in general, but specifically with the autobiography of read of, of taking a story that there are only fragments of, um, mm -hmm. or taking a story that has been like told and retold and sort of like in the beginning, there was a bunch of different versions and then it's been sort of like codified into this, this one way that we look at it. And yeah. taking taking that that story or those characters and trying to present it in a new way that is 
like maybe emotionally there is this a similar through line or a baseline, but sort of putting it in like a what if motif or just like an exploration of like you know you have you have a a, a semi precious stone that is shining or catching the light in a particular way, and if you rotate it, you know like in ninety degrees or something, what does it look like now? So you have all of the, all of the the sort of base elements to it, but is there some some other story or some other thing that's happening in you know like in the story that can be revealed or that can be drawn out or you know? But it was just when you were when you were describing work, I was like autobiography of Red, one hundred percent. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so cool. So yeah, what, Ann Carson is amazing. I'm I'm quite I'm quite taken with her. Yeah. And I, I think that like as a like as as a as a writer that is working in like you said like sort of a bunch of different genres and then potentially hybridizations of those genres I feel like Anne Carson like you kind of you mentioned that Anne Carson's a really kind of stalwart point of someone who does that very very successfully but like mm -hmm. the last essay is a long poem but it is also a like a lyric essay and deals with like the classical sort of mythology stuff that she's dealing with her own personal life and weaving the mm -hmm. like that. And I, th I think that the, the scope and the fact that in that S or in that poem or essay or whatever it is you want to call it, like nothing is off limits that mm -hmm. it can be, she didn't, she wasn't, she didn't choose. It's like, Oh, it's going to be this poem or it's going to be this essay or I'm going to deal with this classical stuff or remember it's like, it's everything. And that, mm -hmm. that totality, I think, was something that I, I don't know if I really experienced in a, in a work before coming to her stuff. That mm -hmm. she's just like, anything is on the table that, that can or could be or should be written about, it, it will show up in something that, mm -hmm. that she's done. Yeah, she's extraordinarily brave. Like, she will go out on a limb to have things... To, to break genre barriers, not even intentionally, but just that she's not going to, she's not going to put these kinds of strictures on her work, right? Mm -hmm. And I think um, sometimes her work is not super compelling, right? Like um, in that S in that in that book, you know, the the last section, you know, men in TV or something like that. I forget. Like it's not like it's not the glass essay, right? It's not the gender of sound. So. I mean, not everything is equally successful, mm. but the thing is, if you only do what you can be sure is going to be successful, then you're going to, you're going to achieve, I think, a lower level of success when you achieve it. Right. So yeah. she has really moments that are extraordinary and she has others that are not so extraordinary, but like you can see that she's taking risks, she's committing to what she's doing and frequently she attains brilliance. And there's, there's a lot of there's a lesson there for me, certainly as somebody who is like trying to succeed as a writer, you know, and like my success depends on other people's judgment all mm -hmm. the time. Right. So, um, it's very difficult to, to give myself that type of permission, um, and to commit to, to experiments that I don't know will pan out. Right. right. Yeah. But she, you know, and she's so prolific. She has so many books. Um, yeah, so I, I think 
there's just there's for me just a lot to learn from her. Yeah, and, I'm and, very... I, and I think that I think that there is maybe not a lot of slack, but at least a little bit of slack that should be cut for people who experiment or who who try things that are like new or different because mm-hmm. like it's the first time that they've done it usually mm-hmm. and you know it's i think that it is a it is a rare thing for someone to try something completely new or completely different and to be phenomenal like at the same level doing mm-hmm. that thing as doing this thing that uh-huh. you've been doing for for years and years and years um i would be I have a fair amount of her books, and I'd, I'm curious. I would be interested to see if, like, if she if she attempted the things earlier in her career that have become sort of mainstays later in her writing career. That's like, in, if if in her earlier book she attempted this thing, and it's like, yeah, it's okay. And then over time, if she does it more and more, she gets to the point of like it's at the level that the rest of her that the rest of her work is at. Um, I might. Well, I think she might suffer from the problem of successful writers where um, you've achieved, you know, you've published a number of books. Those books are well received that they want to publish more books. And you may publish things that you might not have in your earlier career because they might not have been well met. And then that would have harmed your career but now it doesn't really matter because you're famous and so I think some of her later books are probably not as strong as some of the earlier ones but that's Mm. true of any successful writer I think with very few exceptions Um, maybe just exceptions of the exceptions being just people who don't publish a lot period right like somebody like Lisa Russ Spar right she's producing a book like every I don't know five or six years I think they're all extremely high quality right um that's that's a slow pace mm-hmm. you know especially when there's like guggenheims thrown in there so she's got plenty of time to work on them <laughs> right and she's producing just like really gorgeous chiseled uh poems um so i don't think she has a lot of down but she's also not as famous as ann carson so. right. yeah and yeah i mean I, I do think that there is that and i like i've i've experienced this more or i've seen this more in um like musicians or bands just because it seems like there's there's that still that weird sort of um not a whole lot of interest like external interest in poetry and people that are famous in the poetry world that once you get out of that sort of enclave like no like average person on the street probably not know who ann carson is versus knowing a a band but anyway i i think that i agree that there is a one of the one of the potential pitfalls of success is that you get sort of pigeonholed into if there's if there's something that you've done that garnishes a lot of attention or a lot of people are attached to it or are you know like they they tune in and they love it anything that you do after that is going to be measured up to that like that benchmark and if you if you try something different or if you go in another direction or like if you continue to make music in that that avenue there is now that like okay well we can continue potentially doing things in this direction to satisfy like fans or record sales or or label deals or whatever or we can you know like if we go in another direction how is that going to impact 
you know the the fan base or the whoever that that has grown up around this this thing um and i i think that's like that's a really as a fan i can understand that like there's this thing that comes out that you love and you just want more of it and as a producer i can you know like i can also understand that like people change and circumstances change and you can't always or you can't usually duplicate this thing that you did because you're you're never in the same place or the same circumstances to create that thing again because it's you know and it's not only the work it's people want the feeling of discovering you of falling in love with you to be reproduced right and that can't happen with the same with an artist you already know whether it's a, a singer or a band or a, or a poet. I mean, I was talking to somebody about this, about the predicament of the second novel, right? That like, mm. if, if your first novel, if you were lucky enough to have a successful first novel, you almost can't write a successful second novel <laughs> because <laughs> people want something the same and different and they want to feel it all over again, right? right? Yeah. And that can't happen. And you have to recognize that people, that writers are going to grow and change and they might grow away from you, mm-hmm. but that ultimately you can't fall in love twice, you know, with the same person. Right, you can yeah. only do it once. And I, I don't, I, I don't think that I like your your point that they want it the same but different. Is like that's that's the the central sort of like unattainable dichotomy of this thing that like yeah, I want this to be the exactly the same of the thing that I love, but also it needs to be new and different somehow because. It, I don't want it. I don't want it to be this thing, but I want it to be like the next this thing. Yeah, yeah. We don't experience so much of this pressure with poetry. <laughs> Nobody falls in love with us to begin with. Or or very few of us. Yes. Or they do, and or like because I I keep thinking so, like one of my first. And I think my biggest poetry loves is uh, Mary Oliver. And I've, I've talked about her numerous times on the podcast. Um, the last episode I did was a sort of just uh, explanation or exploration of a single poem of hers. Um, but, like, I feel like I don't understand how she's done this. And it might be a testament to just poets because I've experienced this in lesser degrees with other poets. But, like, when I read a Mary Oliver book, it feels like like it it satisfies whatever need that i have in reading a mary oliver book that there is there's some baseline like yeah this is her and it can be i don't know if it's because she she generally like deals with like there's a sort of set cast of the world or of nature that she deals with or it's a like the way that she sees things has become more um like her perspective has become more Mary Oliver over time. And that's the thing that I love is the way that she sees things. So a, a tightening or a, a distillation of that is like, yes, of course I want, I want that. Um, so I don't, I don't know if, if with, if with poetry that like, if you've established a voice or if you've established a, I don't know that like a way that you write that any, any next thing that you write will still be at the baseline. Like this is the way that I see things. It's just, I'm looking at different things now, but I'm still, I will still bring you the, the same quality and the same types of insights. It will just be about topics that are different than the last thing that I, that I did. I don't know. That 
reminds me of Jim Harrison. I think, I don't know if I read all of his books of poetry, but I certainly read three and they were, they all had a similar kind of worldview perspective. They were attuned to nature. You know, you could kind of see him looking out of his trailer wherever he <laughs> lived in Livingston, Montana. And, um, and they, they were satisfying in terms of being different but the same. Mm-hmm. A poet that comes to mind that I really like all of his books, he just published a new book, which I haven't read, but I like all of his books, and they were all different, is Bruce Smith. He's um, a professor at Syracuse. I've taken a workshop with him once, Ooh. and he... He's been nominated for, like, I think the National Book Award a couple times, but he um, he has four or five books, and each one is quite different, but I really love all of them because I just think I really like him as a person. Like, I think that's probably true of you and Mary Oliver. Like, you just have a kind of spiritual or artistic affinity. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to say aesthetic because the aesthetics change. I mean, there is an aesthetic, too, but, like, the aesthetics of the books change. Some are long lines, more prosaic. Some are um, very lyrical. Some are more formal, even. Mm-hmm. And and I just I really like all of them. I like how he has changed as a person and how the poetry has changed. But I think you always it's like I always like the beginning of my favorite movies more than the ends of my favorite movies because you like that feeling that it's going to go on forever, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think I always like early works by my favorite poets a little more, maybe because I feel like it's going to go on forever. <laughs> There's <Yeah>. no mortality. <laughs> have you have you read any of uh, Charles Wright? Yes, of course. I took two workshops with Charles because I went to UVA. What? Right. I, I was pretty sure you were a fan. I wasn't entirely sure. But yeah, um, he taught at UVA. He retired about right when I graduated. So, yeah, I've read a bunch of his. He's a great example, I feel like, uh, when you're talking about Mary Oliver, of somebody who each book is different, but they stay the same mm-hmm. in the sense of, like, this is the same person writing these poems, looking at these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his... Um... His sestets is never very far away from, like, so whenever I go out or go somewhere, I always overpack books just because, like, I don't know what I'm going to want to read. Like, whenever I spend the night at my uh, partner's place, I'm always, like, four or five books of poetry deep, even though I know that I'm not going <laughs> to probably read any of them. But just, like, if, if, the, if, the, if the, the desire strikes, I have these things. Yeah. Um, and his his sestets is usually one of the ones that I throw in my bag of just like I don't know that there is something about I'm I'm a big big fan of all of all of the collections of his that I've read but there's something about that one and um, it might be the brief history of the shadow um, that there's some quality about them. Similarly to, with uh, Mary Oliver's uh, House of Light and DreamWork that is just like, there is something, some sort of connection that I'm feeling with these things, at least right now, that like I, I want to just live in those, in those worlds and in those words, in those poems. Um, he wrote Sestets in a summer. Every day at the end of the day, he would sit down on his porch in Missoula, Montana. That's where he would live in the summer. I think he might live there year-round now. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But um, he'd sit down and he'd write six lines. 
and at the end of the summer he stopped <laughs> he like sent it to stir you know fair strasdrew or whatever like do you do you know if that, that's one way of doing it <laughs> well, do you do you know if that book is organized like chronologically in the order that he wrote the poems yes i think they are okay because that like <laughs> that i did not one i did not know that about that collection but that makes me love it even more and two um i think because with the last or the only two residencies that i've gone to i've employed a very similar mode of writing poetry that like when i was in nebraska it was a poem a day for two weeks and then when we were in uh vermont together it was a poem a day for you know like the 30 or some odd days that we were there um hmm I wonder. I wonder if there was some intuition of mine that that like adhered to that. That's like, yeah, this is. Of course, this is the way that you would write a book. You just do. You just write <laughs> six lines a day for a summer, and then that's that's it. That's the book. Yeah. <laughs> there is a. There's another book that I have um, that was done in a very similar vein. It was a, a a poetry teacher that I had when I was working through my MFA named uh, Steve Matanley, who wrote a book called Nightwork. Um, and he suffers from, I don't know if he still does, but at least for the time that he was writing the book, he suffered from insomnia. So every, every night from like, I don't know, it ranged from like two, eh, maybe like one to like four o'clock in the morning when he would wake up and just couldn't get back to sleep. He would go out on his porch with a, like a small red notebook and then just write a poem. Um, so it was very much a... Which I think is is kind of getting to what we were talking about. That's like it's the same but different. That like most of the book, the things that he's describing, like there's like his porch, there's a tree, there's like a field, there's a lot. It's all the same landscape mm -hmm. and it's all the same scenery. But each night there is some aspect of it that is different, or some some thing or some uniqueness that he sees in this world that um, is really. It creates a like a really neat meditative quality that there is this that when you have such similarity or such like monotony for lack of a better term, there is a freedom of mind or of like thought or of insight that allows you to go to places you probably wouldn't have gone before because it's just you're seeing the same like six things every single night, and that's just you know, like, okay, well, what, what am I, what am I thinking about tonight that is different, that makes this different than it did like last night? I love that idea. And I think it just occurred to me now, but like the, the truth is that like every book of poetry is a portrait of the poet's mind. So if you establish the kind of groundwork that I'm going to look at the same thing every day, or I'm going to sit down at the same time every day, and I'm going to write in this way, then you make explicit, you kind of, you take off some of the dress of the, the fact that the poems are showing the same psyche over time. Mm -hmm. And I really like that, I think, because then it's a project book, but the project, you know, the subject is the poet's mind and mm -hmm. the mentality, and the, the vision and the way that, the way that the world looks to that person. Right. And, and I feel like it highlights the, like, the really minute, subtle changes that often go unnoticed. And I think talking about this, it reminds me of the, um, the like studies that uh, Monet would do where he would go out and like paint the same scene at like morning and then mid morning and noon and afternoon and evening because his focus was 
the light and like how does the changing light change the landscape if if the if the thing is the same but there is like if the if the landscape is the same but there is this light that changes there's this thing that moves through it like how does that change what is there that exists that is the same thing from like day to day to day or hour to hour to hour um which like that and i i think that aspect of it and like the the highlighting of the the subtleties or the minuteness is something that in general in poetry and i i think especially like this is a um this is an interest that haiku occup or meets very very nicely is the the sort of um not lifting up of the small sort of innocuous quotidian things but the throwing light onto it and presenting that's like even things like this you know like a a spider moving across a wall or like a sparrow taking a like a dirt bath or something there's something inherently like interesting or impactful or just there's some light that is in these things that is worth the light that we that we see in you know some other you know like a sunset or you know like bison running across a landscape or something that you know like mm-hmm. they are it might be more the quantity might be more in one mm-hmm. than it is in the other but the quality of it is like equal to each other they are they both mm-hmm. at least have a have a equivalent value that is you know it's it's worth it's worth paying attention to this small thing as it is paying attention to this bigger thing mm-hmm. yeah i think the light of big things can cloud the light of smaller things and and i think haiku is a lot like I don't know, was it like Michelangelo or maybe it was Francis Bacon or somebody said that like, um, like sculpting, you're just finding the thing that's already in the marble, right? Mm-hmm. Like haiku is like that in that um, there's nothing to distract you from this this thing that would be obscured by other things. Right. And um, yeah, and it's, it's a mistake to think that um, just because something is hard to see, it's not worth seeing. Yes or that it holds less value or interest. Yeah. 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 Yeah, There's a, um, there's a special place for me that for things that are like quiet or often overlooked, because I I feel like, especially, and I don't want to be like a, I don't know, kids today sort of a a stance, (laughs) but I feel like, I feel like there's more and more nowadays and I, I mean I think that this has been true kind of all throughout human history and human culture it's just the the trappings have changed and I think it's gotten a little more like the the bigger distract, distractions or the, the big things to pay attention to um, I think have become more uh, overpopulated over time just with the advent of like technology and cars and just you know like there's now just a lot of new things to pay attention to um, mm-hmm. that there is, I don't know, I think that that things that shed light on like the small quiet stuff or the the things that are often overlooked is there's, I don't know, like there's a there's a special kind of value that I give to that, that if someone's like paying attention to, um, you know, like how a flower looks on a gravestone, it's like that's, that it feels so alien and so refreshing that someone would like stop to pay attention to this this one weird small thing versus all the other things that can be paid attention to and that 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 it's i don't know like emblematic of a of a power or a um a draw that that 
any anything could have. It's just if you're willing to like stop and look at it, or stop and pay attention to it. That it's like that. Um, I don't know that that the the real commodity I think now is attention and like what you are willing to look at and how long you are willing to or what you're willing to experience and how long you're willing to experience it um which i think poetry occupies sort of a unique space within that that it like in most of my experience with poetry it's a it's a very much like slowing down and like stopping and taking a breath and just pausing for a second um which I don't know. I think, I think people probably need more of, just in general. Yeah, I think, I think we've been impoverished by this um, distraction, you know, of of technology and and the twenty four hour news cycle and all of this stuff that's that's on us all the time. Yeah. And I think even a, a yoga teacher pointed this out to me, but we've been infected with boredom. And I mean, that's not what she said, but what she said was like, the boredom is preventing you from living your life, from enjoying your life. Like your life is passing one way or the other. Mm-hmm. How much you drive from it depends on whether you're able to appreciate it or whether you're thinking about what the next thing is going to be. Mm-hmm. And I realized the extent to which like I am poisoned by that and we are poisoned by that because we are kind of put at pains to experience so many things in such quick, in such quick succession. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and poetry does the opposite or it should do the opposite. It can do the opposite. But we really, I mean, I just do think it is this impo- very, this critical existential mandate. We have to, we have to experience our lives and not, um, not allow ourselves to be swept away in the, the, um, the stimulation yeah. of all of the things that are available now. Yeah. They're not only available, they're like in our face, right? <laughs> they're obligatory. They're, they are aggressively available. Yeah, all, all but obligatory, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that, so in at least for, for my personal experience with poetry, and it, it might be that it's I'm, I'm more attracted to poetry that does this for me, um, that it feels like what, like meditation on a baseline should be doing or, or the, the, the sort of baseline of why it's, you know, might be important or might be worth practicing is that it, it, the, the, the quieting down of internal things enough so that you can experience and be present in the things that are happening right now around you, um, to like, to, to gain that awareness sort of outside to see the things not just and not just see them as like your perspective but to align your perspective with like how this how this stuff actually is um and i i think that like the best poetry that i've read very much occupies that space that it is it is very much a like a gaining of awareness or a gaining of perspective there's a um there's a video game that i've I have not played personally, but I've encountered a bunch called uh, Katamari Damacy, where the, the gist of it is that you're this little tiny thing that has a ball, and you're supposed to just roll up stuff. And as you roll up things, the ball gets bigger, and you have the ability to roll up larger things and then larger things. And it starts off, you know, like real small, like paper clips and push pins and stuff. And at the end of the, inevitably at the end of each game, you're rolling up like galaxies and the universe. Um, 
And I feel like when I read poetry, it's that sort of level of like that snowballing of I'm, I'm picking up this, this poet's perspective or I'm picking up this way of seeing things and it, I'm like attaching it to or assembling it to the way that I see things. And it's like, it's like the door that was always there that you could never see that you see finally. It's like that, that avenue opens up. And then if I read someone else, this other avenue opens up. And if I read, you know, like Jane Hirschfield, this other avenue opens up. And it's, I think as you, as you can assemble more and more of these insights that you gain sort of like you gain their eyes and you gain the way that you can see things and it, it, it can, um, you know, like it changes your experience with in the way that you move through life in the world, I think, um, which I think is a really, really valuable tool to have, especially for poets whose, you know, like main resource is seeing things and a, a uniqueness of sight. Um, I don't know. Um, but, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I'm curious about how, so why poetry for you? Like how, how did that happen? Why, why is poetry the thing that you have spent, uh, I'm assuming an inordinate amount of time, like pursuing and, and becoming skilled at? Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about that, um, it always seems to me, I'm sure this must not be true for everybody, but I think, I think poetry chooses people or it feels that way. Interesting. Um, you know, every, almost every undergrad that I work with is interested in writing fiction. They read fiction. They know about fiction. Fiction earns money. It's got some steam. <laughs> um, so it's a rational thing to be interested in writing fiction. It's also rational to be interested in writing, I think, um, like a screenplay, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I think people are just drawn to poetry and they don't know why, you know? I mean, for me, I remember reading poems just in books in my parents' house growing up and just really liking them, you know, not really understanding them, mm -hmm. but liking them, liking know kind of well i know language like everybody knows language right like mm -hmm. i can order a sandwich at a restaurant <laughs> i can buy stamps at the post office but here's a way that language works or here's a way people are using it that that just feels really good that's something i'm interested in. that's what i want to i want to spend time doing so i always was drawn to reading poetry and to writing it um but not for any rational reasons. There was just, um, I just liked it. It's just my thing. <laughs> was there, was there a, like an age or a moment that you can pinpoint where you decided it's like, I'm going to be a poet. Like this is going to be the thing that I do with my life. Or was it just a sort of, was it just a gradual thing and you sort of arrived at like, oh, I'm, I'm in a PhD program now for creative writing and that's just, just the natural course of, of things? I was always, always interested in poetry and writing poetry and serious about poetry from a young age. But um, there are a few moments that I think were, were important. I mean, when I read um, 
Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Hundred Years of Solitude, I thought I would like to be a writer. And I knew <laughs> that is a novel, <laughs> but I just, that to me, I mean, he is such, he's such an important writer for me. Um, I just thought, what, there's nothing that can ever measure up to this in terms of worthwhileness for me. Okay. Um, I don't want to transplant hearts. I think it's great that people do, but you know, <laughs> like, I just don't, nothing else holds that much fascination and, and beauty for me. So, um, so that was a moment that I knew and that was in high school. And then there were, there were other moments. Like when I, I went on a Fulbright to Argentina right after college, I was like 22, 23, I guess. And, um, I had a lot of time alone and I wrote poetry and I had taken poetry workshops. I had done a lot at that point, but, um, being alone in a foreign country that was cold and windy and lonely and difficult in terms of how women are treated by people on the street and that type of thing. Um, and having a lot of time on my hands, that I really felt like was when I became a poet because um, I had, I just, I had the mental space, but also the kind of imperative mm-hmm. to write because I was like, well, I've got the time to work on this. And if I don't, I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, Is there... And I did go a little crazy anyway, but not, but less than if I hadn't been writing. Right. Yeah. Um, so I have, I, I guess like, two follow-up questions um one would you consider yourself a writer or a poet or is that is that an interchangeable term for you (laughs) both but but a poet i mean i don't think if you really love poetry you're ever really anything else right i mean it's again like i do think it's a vocation I, Mm -hmm. i really do and not just for myself from other people i've met i mean you for example like you're a dyed-in-the-wool poet, you know, and other poets that I know, like, I read, I read a recommendation that Charles Wright wrote for a friend, and he said of him, he has the calling, and I was like, that's poetry, (laughs) you're called to it or you aren't, nobody's like, it just really makes a lot of sense for me to be a poet, that's the way my life has worked out. And yeah. it's just um, it's just like a really frustrating calling because it takes forever and no money in it and you're just trying to you have to do so much other work in addition to that work to, to Yeah, to that's like alive. Yeah, that no one at least I've not I've not encountered anyone that I have seen that is just a poet. Like there it's usually I'm a poet and I also do all these other things in oh, order yeah. to like um right. hmm. But I consider myself a writer too, you know, because I write other things. Hmm. Um, oh crap. What was the other question? Um, oh, so what, is there a, a way or are there ways that you feel like you employ poetry usually or like what, like how do you, um, like for instance a lot of my poetry is sort of like exploring a space i use it a lot of like echolocation to sort of get a sense of like i'm in a space or i'm i'm putting myself in a space and i'm using 
poetry to sort of get my bearings of, of what's around me in that, that sort of ex- exploratory way. Um, is there a way that you feel like you, you typically em- employ poetry um, that, I don't know, how, however you feel like answering that question? Well, um, I think we've kind of talked about these things already, but one would be to recast the world so that it looks more like the way it looks to me in my mind, right? Okay. The impressionistic kind of quality of, like, a, of of Monet or some type of painter, who, some painter who is putting down something that's at once um, very realistic and also very abstract, right? That mm-hmm. you 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 re-portray the world in a way that reflects how it seems to you. So that's one. And, and there's like a, a reduction of cognitive dissonance, right? In doing that, like looking at the world and there's like an agreement about what it looks like among people, mm-hmm. but you're like, but it's not that way to me. So then you can write it and then it exists and you're like, aha, now it, now there's evidence of this perspective, right? Okay. Another thing I think would be to, to say things I'm not able to express any other way okay. in terms of, I have these ideas and impressions in my mind. And I mean, I think I, I use prose for this too, but I feel like I can't, I can't express them. But eventually if I work on it long enough, I'll get it in an essay or in a poem. And, um, I just can't, I can't imagine cracking the problem of conveying or communicating what I was feeling or thinking or noticing any Mm. other way than through writing. I don't think I would ever give a speech or tell a joke or, or just talk to somebody and like get it and be like, this is how it is. For me, I have to write um, my way into it. So, so. Poetry in that sense would really be like it's the language of your experiences or the the like the outward it's the language of the outward expression of your experiences. Yeah, I think, you know, you have these totally abstract experiences or you experience the world in an abstract way. Mm-hmm. But you can make it concrete through language. But often you need very figurative language in order to do it because um, the actual experience of reality is nothing like the prosaic quality of communicate of communicative language. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I feel like, and this, I, this might be why at least I feel like poetry, uh, I think does such a good job of, of attaining or uh, expressing the sort of emotional truths that I, that I see existing in the world um, because it, it, because it is built so fundamentally on like figurative language that it's, it's always a, like what, what are, what is, or at least the, the way that I, I experience poetry and I, I tend to write or I tend to experience things is like, what is something else that I felt that, or at least when I'm writing poetry, it's like, what is something else that I felt that I know that someone else has felt that is a sort of like an emotional equivalent to this thing. And so there's this, there's, there's this always like metaphoring experiences out into these other things. Um, and I think that, I think that poetry is probably uniquely positioned to operate in that world or in that way of like, that's, that's it. Like poetry is, is taking one thing and 
saying that's like it it is this other thing but this other thing also kind of exists but it you know it's like it, there is there's this equivalency that is that is drawn between these two things and this this like pathway that is now open up that you can walk from a point a to point b and be like oh yes of course i know exactly what this is or i i can i've felt this or like i've experienced or i've lived this um yeah I think I think poetry, at least for me, and at least the stuff that I'm I'm interested in, it is it's like it's the synthesis, it's connection, it's it's the work of the poem, is drawing some connection between like you or the reader and the poet between like things in the poem, that itself and things that you've lived. I don't know. It's like it's it's webs and things that are being drawn and like connected between between everything. Um, which is really like getting back to like the the expanded awarenesses I feel like a very like when you can when you can make those connections um I think is a is a very uh rewarding and also like opening experience mm-hmm. um Yeah Whitman says that like the poet dilates experience um, It's in his preface to Leaves of Grass but that the eye of the poet goes in and it dilates um, any given moment, right? And I think that's so true. You can just see something opening up beyond beyond its its general borders. But it's so satisfying, right? When you do express something that you were trying to express, or when you create, um, you know, an, an interior landscape in the poem that feels right that feels truer than what's around you mm-hmm. um so that's good you have that but it's infrequent <laughs> right it's not like if you wrote a poem every day in the summer you'd feel that sometimes but you wouldn't feel it every time yeah and i think that that yeah and i i think that that like one of the things that i'm i'm i think the most interested in when i read poetry is encountering that the sort of like emotional truth that I get the sense it's like the poet is seeing things as they are, um, which is a, in presenting it in such a way that's like this is you know this is very much filtered through your your perspective and the way that you see it and your life and the things that have happened to you, but like at the very bottom, if you were to take if you were to distill it down to this you know whatever. It's like yes that yes of course this is the way that it is and like you've peeled all these things back and you've presented this little like internal pit of yes of course this is exactly how things are um which yeah i think that is is something that is so rewarding when it's in, when it's encountered because it is not something that is fully realized most of the time I think that's a very it's a it's a tough thing to to attain that um and there's also a weird sort of like it's like the the weird counterintuitiveness that the the more personal a poem is the more universal of a feeling that it is able to engender because you get down into the specifics of like this is the thing that I feel and it is like at the core, it is this very, like, this experience or this feeling. 
that you got to through one way, but if you can describe what that core feeling is, then someone else can be like, oh yeah, I felt that, but I got to it this other circuitous route. Um, versus things that are like sentimental that don't have a whole lot of depth that try to attain the sort of like generic, like, oh, everyone feels this, but it is a very surface level thing because it, it never gets into the specifics of like, oh yeah, I really like this really fucking sucked this one time and this is what I felt. And someone else was like, oh yeah, I felt that the time that this whole thing really fucking sucked in my life. Yeah. I get very mad at my students when they dispute me on this point, which they do. Um, <laughs> they'll say, no, no, no. I really liked how Janie um, she kept it really general because I was able to relate to it. And I'm like, you didn't read Janie's piece, number one. <laughs> and two, that is crap. Because then we'll go through and I'll be like, okay, everybody, what did you like best about? And it'll be like the one specific detail. Mm -hmm. That's always everybody's favorite part, right? You know? Um, and it's, you don't, when you get the detail right, you don't have to say what the emotion was, right. you know? Yes. And, and anyway, you can't name those types of emotions because they're ineffable, right? Yeah. But like, I remember that one of the best images I've ever read and like, this isn't going to be a great discovery or anything, but like, um, T.S. Eliot, he describes a madman shaking a dead geranium or strangling a dead geranium. Wow. And I just think that is one of the like most crushing, like it, it epitomizing of the human condition mm -hmm. things I've ever read, you know, that like mental illness, frustration, loneliness, obsolescence, mortality, like it's all there. And, and when I, when I, when I try to summarize it or like characterize it, I say just a bunch of abstract words that don't mean anything to anybody really you right know? just use them as placeholders to get our point across mm -hmm. but when you know he shows somebody strangling a dead geranium um it's like it, it it's a glimpse into like the the whole human tragedy yeah. you know yeah. and yeah that's the power of of image and that's the power of a particularity you know and um yeah when my students disagree with me about that, I just get really mad. I'm just like, no, I can't teach you anything about writing if you don't accept this premise. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that that's an, an, another, I think, quality that positions poetry sort of uniquely to talk about this thing, is, or to talk about experiences and like the, the sort of indescribable internal life that we have is the fact that it is, at least nowadays, is like very image-driven, image-heavy poetry that like like you said like with the T.S. Eliot image if you can nail that particular and nail that description or nail that image you don't have to do any of the, any of the work of just of trying to describe this this these conditions that exist outside of language you can present this image and someone's like oh yes of course and I, I think for me personally that's one of the reasons why I think haiku occupy the space that they do for me is it's like that's the work that they do. That's all that they're about is that like the best description I've, I've read of what haiku do is that like a poet experiences something. They realize that they, so they, they experience something that causes them to feel something. They realize that there's no way that they can describe what it is that they feel because it exists in some way or like somewhere outside of language. So instead 
they distill like the context of their experience down to its essence and present that to the reader in the hopes that they did their job well enough so that when the reader reads the sort of like the the scaffolding of that experience they can fill it with their own feeling that is you know within the ballpark or akin to or adjacent to what it is that the poet felt so it's in a weird in a sort of like very indirect way they are transferring their experience to the reader but they are relying on the reader sort of like doing the work and walking to this point that's like they have they they've made this bowl that's like they had they had a liquid that they could fit into a bowl but they can't share the liquid so they're going to sh- just share the bowl in the hopes that somebody else fills it up and like oh yes of course i have a bowl of water now um right. yeah that's and- a good metaphor i think too that like they have to be very shrewd in ascertaining what matters like what will scaffold it right mm-hmm. the one haiku i really love it's like something like oh, i'm tempted to look it up because i think i won't remember it but it's like you, it's something like you go north i go south two autumns or you go west i go east mm-hmm. two autumns something like that and um i mean it's so effective right that like we all because you know, we, we all understand, we think we all understand parting from someone that we don't want to part from, mm-hmm. or we are, we have mixed feelings about parting from. And two autumns, you know, like the passage of time, the experience of time, the sense of like seasons as a human and cultural construct, but also about time um, and age and that kind of thing. So, like, pick and sometimes they'll include a detail a personal detail mm-hmm. in, a, in a haiku that you know um it kind of injects it kind of like is one of those geological drills that digs down very very deep into the earth's crust mm-hmm. against the image that they give you right the yeah. image of a firefly or of the moon on the lake or something like that and that's like the ability to figure out what pieces you can give to create that whole picture mm-hmm. is not easy. <laughs> like that is yes, um, but it looks easy when you, it looks simple. Oh God, they but look the selection process. It looks effortless, which is I, yeah. I think that like any anything that looks effortless, I think like on on a purely like ostensible level, I think uh, like maybe ninety five percent of the time. Um, is not like there's no there's no way that you could just like do that thing um, without some level of years of experience of doing that thing. That's Yates. He said in Adam's Curse. He said, uh, "Oh God, I should look that up. I'm not gonna remember." But you know, he says like that's Adam's curse that we must labor to make beauty, something like that. that yeah. Fill the soil for one flower, you know. Um, we don't. We, we've disinher- We've been disinherited from the garden, you know. But yeah, like to make something as beautiful as nature requires a ton of work. But then you have to erase the appearance of that work because the knowledge of that work will affect the beauty of the thing. You know? Yep. Yep. Tarnish it, compromise it. Yeah. Hmm. So. 
another direct question time. Um, have you, so have, have there been um, major shifts that you've noticed in your writing? And if there were, like, what could you, can you point to anything that precipitated, like, each, each new development? Um, well, I think uh, the fact that I've been working in other genres and in translation um, is a big shift. And I haven't been spending as much time on poetry recently, although I intend to in the coming year and a half. Um, because I've, I've tied up some things at work. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I, and I think, like, reading writers like Ann Carson has been really influential as well, as I was, as I was saying. Um, but I think something I've been on the fence about for years, and I'm just kind of, I'm always, I think, shifting or trying to negotiate it, is to what degree I want my poetry to be... Um, more prosy or more lyrical, more um, talky or conversational, or mm -hmm. more uh, tight and um, image-based, right? And um, I think I have some poems in both veins that are that are quite successful. But I'm really I haven't I haven't answered that question. I don't, is that something you think about in your own work? It's something I've been thinking about for many years. Yeah, and after like. After reading, or whenever I, I really dig down deep and read Charles Wright, there is a particular um, conversational affectation that I notice in my writing, usually like directly, if I write anything directly after reading a bunch of Charles Wright, that there's a like some, I don't know, some, some Wrightian accent that I pick up. Um, that actually, I was going to suggest that like, I feel like he, he, can occupy that space between like conversational-ish, but also like- Like rhetorical language, but it's not conversational, right? It's like yeah. um, some sage noticing something, yeah. right? It's like this spiritual, spiritual aesthetic conglomeration. Yeah, he, he's, I think, rather unique. Oh, another favorite of mine is Louise Glick. Ooh, I yes. Love I love Averno um, and a lot of her work, but she's terrific, I think, as well. At like, she doesn't adhere that much to the image, and yet you would never say that her poetry wasn't imagistic. I mean, it's like, it's lyrical, but she'll tell you things, you mm -hmm. know? She'll say, like, whatever, whatever, I'm trying to think of it. My mind is like a sieve. Um, you know, she'll say that the mornings are tragic with their coffee and newspapers or something like that. And, and, you know, she'll say, she'll tell you about Persephone going down into hell or something like that. And it never, like Charles Wright, it never feels conversational remotely, even though it's more like prosaic, it's more prose language or rhetorical language or something like that. Yeah. They're yeah. exceptional. Um, I, I've started reading uh, A Village Life. Um, uh -huh, yeah. about a week and a half ago and like the majority of the early poems in that are super super expository that it's it's just like <laughs> she's just telling you stuff and yeah. it it feels like and I think that that's kind of another way that like nonfiction and poetry can occupy the same space is that it, it feels like I'm reading 
like a, a lyrical essay that's just been sort of chopped into lines and stanzas instead of like mm -hmm. sentences and, and um, section, like paragraph sections. Um, um, another one is um, Jory Graham, Erosion. That is a tremendous book. To be honest, I'm not much on her recent work, but that book is one of the best poetry collection I've ever read. I just love it. And it's similar. It's like she's observing things. She's talking about things. It's kind of straightforward, but it's not straightforward. It's profound and um, textured and, and amazing. I just love that book. If you... If you're if you're looking to try to to bridge a gap between the like the conversational and the the heavily imaged, you might want to mm -hmm. check out uh, Tom Hennen's Darkness Sticks to Everything. Okay, I will try it out. Because um, he's he writes so towards towards I guess the end of not the end of his career, but in more recent poetry, he's he's sort of gravitated towards the prose poem. So like a, just a block of text on the page. Mm. Um, but it feels similar I to close poetry. I haven't really done it much, but I experimented it with it a little at VSC. Ooh. But I, I feel like I want to do more. Yeah, he, he, I think would be a good source because he, he feels like he's a little more like Charles Wright for me feels like a like if like the same level of like academic, or maybe a little bit less academic than Ann Carson, but like that bleeds into his work. I feel. Um, He's a translator too. Mm, I feel like translation is a kind of academic thing, right? You're trying yeah. to be precise. You're trying to master another language. I yeah. think that a lot of poets are translators too. And I think that obsession with language and precision is very, it, it matches the poetic project, yeah. right? So I, I feel like if, if Charles Wright was maybe less of a translator and maybe a little less academic, he would probably be Tom Hennon. Okay. Um, but, I look forward to reading that. Um, since we were talking about translation, I've been wondering, like, when when did translation, like, enter into your, like, writing and poetic practice? Well, only seriously recently. But I used to translate just for fun. Uh, I've done that for a long time, okay. right? So I would read, like... Garcia Lorca or Neruda mm -hmm. and I would translate my favorite poems um, I would you know usually have a little dissatisfaction with the translation I was reading and most translations are published with with the original mm -hmm. right like side by side mm -hmm. and that's I don't know that's a complicated thing I'm not sure that's a good thing because like it invites the reader to like Land. Right. Yeah. If, if you yeah. if you yourself are uh, have language capabilities in both languages, yes, I it it invites direct comparison between like the original and the translation being presented. And it's kind of like you you need a bit of suspension of disbelief, or you need the reader on your side a little more. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of too many cooks spoil the broth sort of situation. I mean, somebody said to me like, "Oh my gosh." You're reading Poet in New York by um, Garcia Lorca. And it said, like, there's a poem that begins, like, I was, fue, fui asesinado por el cielo. Right? So you could say, I was assassinated by the sky. I was murdered by the sky. I was murdered by heaven. I was assassinated by heaven. And I think 
the translator said, I was murdered by the sky. I think that's what he picked. I, I feel um, like of of the four options, that is maybe the the least the worst. Yeah. So some, the least um, kind of weight, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. Anyway, but the um, the person was saying to me, like it says assassinated, and he didn't use assassinated, and Lorca was assassinated, and that is true, and like that, those are all really good reasons for selecting that um, that word in English, but on the other hand. Asesinar does tend to just be used to mean murder as well in mm. Spanish. So it's, but ultimately, you're reading like the first poem in the book and you're getting hung up on a, on the first sentence, right? Yeah. And that is um, not an experience that if, say, you read a novel in translation, you have because you're not looking at the novel, you know. And But with poetry, you know, readers of poetry, of poetry and translation often are in that position where they're just getting hung up on stuff. And... It's cool to give people all of that information and to invite them to think about the process and to invite them and think about the um, what translation is and all of that. But there's a downside to it as oh, well. Oh, yeah. And I, I think so. that, like, sort of what we were talking about before with, like, the precision of language um, with poetry, that, like, with a novel, like, the sentence doesn't necessarily, like, the quality of the each individual sentence doesn't necessarily carry the same weight as the sort of totality of the story being told. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I think in poetry, like, it totally makes sense to me that people would be hung up on, like, individual lines or individual words because they carry so much more weight in a poem that, like, you know, using assassinated versus murder could color the entire poem in different ways that like depending upon what emotional quality or what hue you want this thing to to attain and to have like that's those mm-hmm. individual choices i think are are so much more important um so yeah are, so i've i want to say i went to a i went to a i think it was a translation panel at an awp and they were talking about the sort of like two camps of translation of like a a very faithful like like transliteration. Was it, was it um into translation? Is that is it the um? I don't remember. I'm gonna leave my cat with you, and I'm gonna go get this book. Was it last year? No, it was a couple. It was a handful of years ago. Okay, never mind. That was. Yeah. <laughs> That was that. There was a there was um a book called I think it was called Into Translation out last year that there was a panel about um where they included what they did was they gave um three or four three translations I think of twenty poems and then they just they had somebody discuss those different one of them was Ann Carson uh, a translation of Sappho but that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Sorry. No, the the idea, and I I want to say that I've encountered this sort of this idea or this distinction in some of the like the haiku prefaces, the the prefaces to haiku collections that I've that I have and I've read, that the idea of like you have the the sort of like trans like as a, as a translator is your role to present the the translated work in as close as you could get to what is presented in the original language or do you take a more interpretative um role in that like you are like 
composing or writing yeah. new poems using these, the translations, the sort of like base level, you know, like, I, I guess it would be similar to um, like film adaptations of stories that like, yeah. do you, do you mm-hmm. go for like shot for shot remake essentially in a different medium or do you use do you make sure that you hit the, like the major themes the major moves you capture the tone so like a um like a a blade runner translation of um dear android's dream of electric sheep um that you know doesn't follow the plot really at all or misses out on these major plot things but nails the tone and the emotional quality and the sort of like the general themes of real and artificial life and consumerism and all that stuff um versus i don't know i can't think of a like of a of a um an overly faithful film adaptation yes yes that that one that's like we're not known for that right yeah yeah so do you is there a a version of translation that you typically employ or like how do you how do you navigate that as a as a translator yourself yeah i mean um the more faithful one. Personally, if I were translating something very old by someone who was dead, um, and I thought my project was specifically to reinvent this piece for uh, a contemporary moment, Mm -hmm. or to do a feminist version of it, or something like that, then I would would have a freer hand. I would... um, I would try, I would allow myself to be more, um, yeah, to stray further, to, to reinvent it, right, as my own poem. Mm-hmm. And you have to do that to some degree with any translation, for sure. But when you're working with a writer who is also 35 years old, you know, who lives like a four-hour plane ride away, <laughs> you know, you don't feel, and, and also when you're not famous, you know, it's one thing if you're W.S. Merwin right. or Charles Ray, and you're, yeah. you know, that's one thing. But if you're just me, um, people aren't like, oh, my God, I'm so interested on her take of right. whatever. I'm just some buddy who's getting in the way of you and the real text, right? right? Yeah. That's what people say of translators. Like somebody said they're an unfortunate problem or something like um, an, an unfortunate but indispensable problem. So if you're an unfamous translator working with a living author, I think it's, it makes the most sense to be very careful. Another thing is since I do translation from Spanish and so many people speak Spanish or think that they speak Spanish or studied like a semester of Spanish, Uh um, it's all the more, uh, all the more scrutiny that's going to be placed on, on something that I do. Right. Whereas like if I were doing Polish, um, so, so few people know Polish or even can read Polish that, um, you'd get a lot fewer people giving you a hard time about it. Right. Right. Um, and again, if I were doing prose as opposed to poetry, that all of these factors mean that there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on my work. So I do want to achieve something quite um, exact and precise, but um, there's no point in having something precise if you lose the poetic qualities of it. Right. Yeah. 
a downside of having of translating someone alive is that they can get quite involved and um sometimes they want you to reproduce the same poetic effects that they had in the original yeah and that can work but that could also be a mistake because you might be able to achieve that but it doesn't make the poem better right yeah and like each each language has its own that was something that in the um uh i've encountered this with translations of rilke that like in german most of his poems rhyme in that like mm-hmm. in yeah. in english and, and similarly with like um like french and uh spanish language poetry that like they more often than not rhyme just because there's more often than not like endings that they're rhyme rich yeah yeah mm-hmm. that like in english if you were to if you were to to make that happen there is a quality that you could lose or there's an impact that you could potentially uh, in danger of, of lessening by doing that because it's, you know, like you, you are, you're trying to attain like some aspect of this language in another language. It's like, it might not work that way. And then, and like um, in, uh, in Japanese, like there are, there are haiku that have like very rich, uh, like sonic elements because of all of the vowels and the way that they work that you can't really duplicate in English. So it's like there are, I feel like it's with the limited, limited exposure and experience that I've had with translation and when talking with translators, I feel like there is always a sort of like a balance or a give and take that you can have this thing, but you might have to give up this thing. And like that, just that balance between like, what is, what is the most effective or evocative that I can make this 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 thing exists and like what are things that i'm that i necessarily or that i i feel like i absolutely have to attain and what are some things and like i could maybe lose this if you know if it comes down to it but i i wanted to ask did did uh the poet that you worked with in in the translation or the poet whose work you translated were they um like did you invite their uh, uh, what's the word? Their collaboration. Yes, thank you. Um, or is it something that like, or I guess like how? Yeah, how how did that how did that go? Was it something that you that you went into thinking that's like you would want to work with them to craft the poems that they craft the poems in a way that they felt like it needed to happen, or did you did you and would you have rather worked more independently and just sort of generated this thing and then brought it to them and be like this is this is the work that I've done or that I have and you know like I don't know. it was both so I did the first draft completely on my own and then she helped me revise and um some of those revisions were just like totally essential like I had misunderstood something mm-hmm. some were kind of probably give or take, like it was probably six of one half dozen the other from my perspective, but they were important to her. Mm-hmm. And then there were probably a few that were just, sometimes you make so many changes to a poem that it starts to lose the center a bit for, from the idea that you had for it. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know if the poems, some of those poems are better or worse or neutral. Um, but to me, uh, I just... I think, you know, when somebody gives you the rights to translate their work, that's um, a weighty gift. And um, 
it, it would be really selfish to not um, invite that person, especially if the person is fluent in English, to invite them to collaborate at least on the revision, yeah. right? Um, but she's been very happy with my translations overall. Um, so the, the revision process that we've done so far, it's been kind of like a lot. It's, it's been a lot, but, um, but it's really great. I'm very lucky that she is so fluent in English and can help me with a lot of the things that she helps me with. Even if sometimes I feel that I lose a kind of centrifugal force over the poem that I felt I had at one point, mm -hmm. that's, that's not a very big issue, I think. I've heard I've heard people say who was I think Marilyn Nelson and Elizabeth Alexander they they co-wrote a book and they said like we should get away from the ego in poetry and I was like I've never really agreed with that because poetry is all about the I the self go right but with translation it is a collaboration yeah. so it would be like really nasty to to um, exert your will over somebody's poem, especially if that person is alive and can have a say. Right, you know? yeah. It speaks your language. Is, so is there, is there a reason that she did not translate her poem, her poetry, or this collection herself if she is fluent in English and wanted, or was it a like, I really... You should consider inviting her on your show. No, yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I've been making a list of, of poets that I wanted <laughs> for this particular season and she's, she's on the list. Yeah. Well, I think one thing is interesting. She continues to write in Spanish, even though she lives in New York and speaks English fluently. And I think one of her books was published. I think two of her books were published in Argentina. I'm not sure where the third was published. But um, why didn't, you know, that would be a question for her. But I, I think she would say her facility with English would not allow her. Okay. Um, and to, to reproduce the poems at the same level. Sometimes when she gives me revisions or um, suggestions, she'll ask, like, how does this sound in English? I'm just not quite sure. Gotcha. And I speak Spanish very well, but I know that I couldn't do in Spanish what I can do in English. Right. Yeah, so, that, that, um, just, just the similar to how your, like, the outward expression or the language of your outward, outward expressions of emotion is poetry in general, like hers would be poetry in like written in the Spanish language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in Argentine Spanish particularly. Yeah. I was going to say that like, was that, was that a challenge to, to like, did you, did you learn the sort of like the standard, like, you know, like standard Spanish that's taught in, I'm assuming probably the majority of the United States. Um, were, were there, like phrases or things that are specific to like Argentinian Spanish that you had to, that you had to gain knowledge of or gain access to that. Not really because I spent an, a year in Argentina, Okay. but, um, the, and her, her poems are not super referential to like pop culture or anything like that. But, um, the main thing with Argentine Spanish is the voceo which is a form of address that is um, informal, mm -hmm. but it's instead of the, the tuteada, the two. So instead of saying, tu tienes, tu eres, you say, vos tenés, vos sos. So uh. tu is really never used in, in Argentina. Um, there are other countries where they use both kind of interchangeably. There are other countries where they use 
two, but they use the vos conjugation. <laughs> so, but I'm used to vos, so that wasn't a big deal. But I could have learned that easily if I needed to. But her poetry is not very referential in terms of like talking about singers or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't. There wasn't a big learning curve in terms of that. Um, and Argentines have a lot of different words for food and a few cultural things, but. I think for the most part it was it was pretty okay. Hmm. She had a tree. I knew the tree. <laughs> Lapacho. I know Lapacho. So yeah, I mean it was <laughs> it's all right. I'm not an expert, but um, yeah. But I had enough basis of knowledge to, to 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 be worrying more about rendering the poetry than w- rendering those cultural right. or linguistic yeah curiosities. Do you do you feel like if poetry is a calling that is something that is that chooses people, not necessarily that people choose, do you feel similarly about translation? Or is or yeah, I guess that's the question. Do you feel like translation is also a calling or do you think that it is a little more uh, open than poetry in general? A lot of people translate who do not really speak other languages or don't speak them well. Um, and they might work with a person who speaks the language, and then they do the translation. Um, they might speak a language well, but translate from some other language that they don't know. Um, I'm thinking about doing that. I'm thinking about translating Czech, um, and my husband speaks Czech, but I don't. Um, but I think language, mastery, mastery of a second language or m- more than one language, that's a calling. I think that's there are people who love languages and yeah. then there's everybody else who does <laughs> exhausted by it. Right. Like most people, they just, they have the same attitude towards other languages as like math. They're just like, Oh, somebody else will do that. Right. Yeah. But, um, people who love other languages, love other languages. That's like, okay. You know, it's like, I think that's a kind of inborn thing. I, and people can light that fire in you too. But, um, yeah. uh, no, um, Cyrus Cassells just came to Texas Tech last week and um, gave a really great reading. And he was talking about the most influential teacher he'd ever had was when he was a little kid, his Spanish teacher. And he has since become a translator of Catalan, right? So, like, he clearly has this bug, right? This bug of of learning other languages and being interested in language like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But you don't have to be a lover of learning other languages to be a good translator. You you can just be competent or, or careful or have somebody else (laughs) use the language and you can still do it really well. Mm -hmm. I mean, Merwin, he was fluent in Spanish, French, Portuguese, and possibly Italian. He lived all over Europe, but he translated all kinds of other languages too. Robert Bly is a great translator, but I don't think he speaks Swedish or like, Russian or ancient Persian, but he translates from all these languages. You yeah. know, he does it. I don't know what his process is, but um, uh, yeah, you don't have to be a master of language, but I think loving other languages, that is kind of something that bites you. Okay. Hmm. I think, which do you, are you a, are you a, a non-native speaker of something? Um, do you no. like language acquisition? Um, I think I am more 
interested in just languages themselves, not necessarily interested in the work that is required to for me to speak them. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I so I took I took Spanish throughout like middle school or I guess like grade school and high school, um, and I'm not sure why, but like the Spanish language never really enticed me. And so for a while I was like, oh, I guess like learning other languages this is really isn't a thing. Um, and then in my my first year of undergrad, I had the opportunity to take a Russian class. And taking Russian, I was like, oh, this is this is wild. I like. I've I've retained a a minuscule amount of the things that I learned, um, but just that experience of like being uh, presented with a totally different alphabet and a totally different way of of really pronouncing things and like the location of of like the tongue and the mouth and like where the vowels live and you know like how far yeah. back. Because um, in in Russian there is there are two different like sh sounds. Um, yeah. There is a sh with the tongue like right up on the teeth, and there is an sh with the tongue a little bit back on the palate. Um, that are like you know just things that you would never encounter in English. Um, well, there's only three because there's the one that's in borscht, right? There's borscht, borscht. Yes. There's sh, there's and then sh. Yeah. Um, but, um, no, so like, let's be quiet. Otherwise he's going to come correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was like, that was, but I took Russian in college for one semester. And I remember just the, the feeling of being illiterate was like, so exhilarating. Yeah. Right. Cause I'd never studied a language that didn't have uh, an italic alphabet, mm -hmm. Latin alphabet. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like that, that level of, I guess, similar to kind of what we were talking about before of like falling in love you know you can't fall in love with the same person like the same thing twice sort of a thing that there is a there definitely was an exhilaration i mean there was a fair amount of frustration but the exhilaration when i could write out you know like the the statement my name is michael zuloff in cyrillic and read it and be able to be like oh like it's not just these random alien squiggles and shapes and stuff it's it makes it's it makes sense um and then i took a, a linguistics class in uh like a year later and then i had to take french for a whole bunch of years like towards the like to kind of complete my uh my those requirements in college um and taking the linguistics linguistics class really kind of opened up language for me as a like the like the placement of your tongue and how your mouth moves and how the like, you know, that vowels are approximations of things and they move around. And, um, mm -hmm. a friend of mine, um, who is an, an, uh, theater person was commenting that, um, like accents are all in the vowels, that it's all in the placement of like, if you can nail where the vowels are, you pretty much have the accent because it's, it's, a, um, it's a matter of like, just, I don't know, but in in taking French, that was a, a if there was a language that I that I would do anything with, it would be probably French, just because I've had the most experience with that. Um, but I like there is a part of me that is small, that is it grows and it shrinks. Um, that I really kind of want to learn Japanese with 
for, mm. with the express express purpose of uh, translating haiku or like translating just you know contemporary Japanese poetry into English at some point. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, um, I think that learning Japanese to the point where I could be competent with that, I think might be a ways off. But I had not thought about working with someone who speaks Japanese and then just using my poetic abilities to to shape it that way. Yeah, I did a translation seminar with Curtis Bauer at Tech and um, every, I don't know, there were like 12 kids in the class. Kids were all like, you know, 30 <laughs> to 40. But um, we kids, we all translated um, different languages, right? Like I did Spanish, some people did French, German, whatever, all, all these different, Indonesian. Um, but a lot of people, we all had to have um, a collaborator. We all had to have a native speaker or a native level speaker as a, as a point person. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, people who had one semester of a language, people who had none of that language, you know, they worked with transcriptions, they used Google translate, right? I mean, which might sound ridiculous, but you use Google translate and then you work from that and then you, show your person who speaks the language really oh. well done and then they can kind of point out where there might be discrepancies or, or confusions. So there's definitely a process for, for doing it. I wouldn't be um I wouldn't be discouraged or, you know, or, or think you shouldn't do it. And really I think any amount of insight that you can get into a language is just gonna help you. Yeah. You know, it's just make you a little bit better. Yeah. Hmm. I've met people with virtuosic abilities in Spanish that I like stand in awe. Like somebody I took a class from in Spain when I was studying abroad in college, he knew words from all over Spain that weren't used in other parts of Spain. So like Aragonese, Aragonese words and um, you know, Andalusian words and uh, Catalan words. And he was just incredible. Um, just like an encyclopedic knowledge of Spain as a nation state's different dialects. It was, yeah. it was amazing. Jeez. I, I think that's, I think it's awesome. I don't think I'll ever have that <laughs> language, even probably English. <laughs> yeah. There's a, um, I don't know if you've taken this test, but there was an online test quiz thing that, um, I think it's like 20 something questions and it would ask you like, like the trucks that you see on the highway that have, you know, uh, that are, that carry cargo, like, what is your name for this? And then, it, you know, like, do you have a name for the, the night before Halloween, um, different things. And then based upon your answers, it tries to pinpoint like where you're from. Cool. Um, cool. and I threw that. Did it get you right? Hmm? Did it get you right? Yes. Um, because. I, I've, it was taking this, this quiz thing that I realized that despite the fact that I do not speak with a New Orleanian accent, I, I heavily pepper my, uh, my vernacular with, uh, New Orleanian terminology and phrasing. Um, so it, it pegged me as like New Orleans and it was like the New Orleans Baton Rouge sort of like general area. But I was like, yeah, that's 100% right. Because, you know, I call them like. 18 wheelers i say catacorner as opposed to like catawampus or catacorner um i call like um any sort of 
Uh, carbonated mm-hmm. beverage is a soft drink to me instead of like a, a Coke. I mean, yeah. So I like, I know Hot. that, yeah. Or yeah. Or like soda or something. Um, but it was just, it was really astounding to, to like, to be presented with, with thinking about language in a way, like a language that you might use or utilize on the daily and not really put in the, the sort of, um, I don't know, like analytic looking at it like, oh, okay. Like I use, I use this. I was actually, um, so in, in New Orleans, um, and specifically New Orleans, um, New Orleanians call the median, the neutral ground, um, which comes from the fact that at one point in New Orleans history, it was owned by both the Spanish and the French and the city was essentially cut like right through the middle. Um, and there was a strip of land. I'm not sure what it was like, what it was used for back in those days, but there was a strip of land sort of between them that was dubbed the neutral ground. Um, and in New Orleans, instead of just like little concrete strips of median, there's usually like, you know, it's a maybe like seven, eh, like ten feet wide. There's usually grass and some trees and stuff. So it's it's like little sort of like alley park looking things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up calling that the neutral ground. I took a driver's ed class and the, t- the term median was never brought up. Um, <laughs> and I moved to uh, Lafayette um, for the remainder of my undergrad, which is like, if you're looking at the map, it's like you have New Orleans. And if you go sort of like west and a little north, you hit Lafayette, which is smack jab in the middle of uh, like Cajun country. Like that's, that's where Cajuns are. Um, and I was in a car driving somewhere with a friend of mine who'd lived in that area all of her life and something happened in the meeting and I was like, Oh, Hey, look, look at that thing on the neutral ground. And she turned to me and she was like, what, what did you call it? And I was like, it, it's a neutral ground, you know? And she was like, the median I was like, Oh, <laughs> this thing that I thought was a universal, like not, not a universal like American thing, but at least a universal mm-hmm. Louisianian thing. I was like, oh no, 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 no. This is specifically endemic to New Orleans and that's it. Um, Wouldn't it be fun to be a linguist who studies that kind of thing? It'd be really fun. Well, it's actually like a- You'd have to go to college forever. Yes. <laughs> You'd um, have to write so many grant proposals. <laughs> there is a friend of mine that I that I had in my MFA program um, who was from Louisiana, but like, from Lafayette, and then she moved up to Shreveport. Um, but let's see if I can get this this correlation right. Her dad was friends with a linguist, and at one point in their discussions over the years, the linguist posed the question to her dad of, do you know why New Orleans accents, Jersey accents, New York accents, and Boston accents all sort of sound similar? Like, they all, they're all unique, and they all have their particular flavor, but at the core, they're sort of a relationship or a similarity between all of them. And her dad was like, I have never thought about it. And the, the linguist said, and this is uncorroborated, but I believe it, that um, the reason that all of those accents sound similar is because all of the, and Baltimore accent too, all of those cities are port towns. And so the accent that sort of grew mm-hmm. up there is an amalgamation of all of the different sort of like immigrant accents that exist. And I think that the, the sort of like local colorization of certain vowel traits might be a, um, a result of like the most prominent 
immigrant community that showed up around the time in those cities to, mm -hmm. you know, because when I went up to, um, what the fuck was I doing? I was somewhere like in Boston, not too many years ago. And I realized that like the stereotypical Bostonian accent, um, if you fed it a really like really big standard New Orleans dinner, you know, like fried food, bunch of carbs and stuff and let it slip into a food coma, you would uh -huh. get the yat accent because the yat accent is like the, the absolute laziest way to speak. But <laughs> yeah. there are like vocal similarities between that and the Boston. I was like, oh shit, this like, yes, this makes sense. But I, yeah, I like, I don't know that, that level of like, of, so I'm going back to your original question way back. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very interested in, in language, in the mechanics of language, in the analysis of language and like linguistic tics and similarities and stuff. But I, I don't imagine that I would ever get to the point of, um, of, of attaining like polyglot. No, yes, polyglot level of, of uh, skill in languages or just the, the learn I would like to learn about languages. I don't necessarily want to learn mm -hmm. the, like the individual languages. Um, yeah. What about you? Or do you, do you, do you aspire to, uh, attain mastery of multiple languages? Or are you, are you happy with English and Spanish? No, I do. I have studied other languages, but not to the point of fluency. And I would really like to, there are a lot of languages I would like to study. Um, but I think I think the next one I want to study is probably Hebrew, Ooh. both because I'm interested in the Hebrew Bible and because um, uh, my husband and I, we want to raise our daughter with a little more sense of her Jewish ancestry than he was raised with. <laughs> we think it would be nice for her. So to me. When I was a kid, I always wished instead of going to like dance and violin, I could like go to language lessons. And I did. My mom and I took sign language together for like six years. But um, yeah, so I think she and I will study Hebrew when she's old enough. That'll have, be my next one that I'll set my, my mind to. Have you ever considered the possibility of translating poetry into ASL? But I do know that there are ASL poems. Really? Yes. There are videos on like YouTube of ASL poems. Because um, one of my students did a translation of an ASL poem for my class last wow. year. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's something that like, so I was, I was talking with a friend at a, at a, uh, fr another friend's, a mutual friend's birthday party last night about like, She's she's interested in getting into audiobooks or like being the voice for audiobooks. Um uh -huh. and this is something that I've thought about for a while that um I've not encountered a whole lot of like poetry audiobooks. Um uh -huh. but also just now thinking it's like for people that, that are not I mean, I guess you can have the poem on the page for for people that are uh like hearing impaired, but like what? What it would? Be, what would it be like if if a poem of mine was translated into ASL? Like I have I have absolutely no foundation to think of what that would look like, um, or just if there's if there's a, an interest in in that. Um, I don't know. 
Well, you should YouTube it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So since we are, I think, probably getting towards the end of the, of the recording, um, there are two questions that I traditionally ask all of my guests at okay. uh, towards the end. Um, the first one is, if you have the vocabulary for this, what is your internal landscape like? Oh, wow. Um, my internal landscape. And it can be like, <laughs> it's, it does not necessarily have to be a landscape landscape. Like mine personally is, but I've had somebody who was like a, the inside of a geode. There's another person who was essentially like brightly colored frosting on the inside. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, but if, yeah, just if like, if you were to like quiet yourself down or like find your center place, if it, if it manifests as a particular like landscape or just like whatever that looks like or feels like to you, um, mm. if you have, if you have the ability to describe it. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot of appealing landscapes. Um, but I guess probably I just think of certainly being outside, um, probably the woods where the leaves have fallen, you know, it's a cool day, but not a cold day. Um, and yeah, I think that to me is like the most natural, normal place I could imagine being. So the inside of me must be something like that. Is it, is it a particular woods or is it just sort of like a generic Oh yeah, I think the woods in South Jersey where I grew up and would go on walks all the time, that kind of thing. A deciduous forest, you know, not far from the water, Um, Hmm. where you don't see animals a lot, but they're there, you know, snakes and birds and the occasional like maybe muskrat or something like that. But you have to really be looking for them. You have to be quiet. Yeah. So would... Would your, would your, would your internal landscape also be populated by these animals that are existent but are difficult to, to, uh, encounter unless you're quiet and still and. Definitely, I think inside of me it's very quiet, but there's actually stuff going on. <laughs> you just have to wait long enough for it to, uh, uh reveal itself and this is i'm teaching i'm talking to myself right now because i have to make the time to i have to make the time to listen to myself in order to write do you do you feel like the like i guess like the fauna that exists in your internal landscape like is it do you feel like that would potentially be directly related to the like the poems or the the essays and things that you write like do you feel like the 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 animal life or the 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 things that populate this woods are the like the writing that you're chasing down or that appears to you or do you think that like are they emissaries of that or do you think that it's just like it's just a representation that there are things that exist there that you just have to be quiet enough to like encounter i think no i think i'm more like you with your love of haikus that i think if i pay attention to small, quiet, um, difficult to notice things that that's something worth my attention. And that's the kind of thing that I would like to write about. Um, 
yeah, their lives are what I would like to write about to okay. some degree. Cool. Um, and the second question um, that I usually ask is, is there anything you want to ask me? Anything's on the table, <laughs> wide open. Just if, if there's something that, that you're interested in or that you've been thinking about, but yeah, anything, anything cool. you'd like to ask me. What have you been reading and working on? Um, I have not been, well, so I've, I've not been reading as much as I would like, but I, I have been, um, thumbing through, uh, House of Light by Mary Oliver. Um, and I just got finished, uh, maybe, uh, like, um, half a month ago finished, uh, the new Murakami novel, um, mm -hmm. which... One eight one or something, yeah. No, um, it's uh, oh newer than that. Yes, it actually it came out in October. <laughs> it's uh, Killing Common the Tore, I think. Mm. Um, I've I've realized that I am arriving at a point that I have very mixed feelings about uh, Murakami's writing, and I'm not sure, like. I'm looking at my bookshelf and his novels and his writing occupy like half of one of my shelves. Um, so I think I'm going to have to like go through and sort of whittle down the things that I, I really want to, to have in my life. You know, he is a very accomplished translator. He's translated like dozens of novels into yeah, Japanese. I've, I heard that uh, part of the influence of his new novel was the fact that he just finished translating um, the great Gatsby into Japanese. <laughs> Um, and there's there's an element in his novel of like it's sort of a, like a B plot kind of of the Great Gatsby light mm -hmm. almost, um, but yeah. So that's that's stuff that I've been reading, um, and I've been working on a. I'm calling it a collection of bird poems that aren't actually bird poems. Um, so each one is is it has the each one is titled the name of a bird. Um, and I use that as a sort of like an emotional groundwork for a poem, for poems that have been exploring like, um, like my relationship to like death in the ending of relationships, um, and like my body and sort of the beginning explorations of like agenderness and how that, I feel like that works with being in a, a body that is not, uh, that does not lack a physical gender um mm -hmm. and i've also um uh, that is currently on hold sort of right now um while i'm working with um do you remember jessica merchant from the studio center uh-huh yeah um we're doing a, a neat collaborative process a project where um i wrote six poems and she did like six um like small sort of visual art things and we sent them to each other and we're responding to each other's work and then we're going to send cool. the original things back. Um, so I, yeah. I am like, I'm a poem down from my response to her visual art. Um, and I have five more that I need to write by the end of the month. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's sort of like not top priority, but that's sort of like where my head is right now. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm also like, for pleasure, but also for like my press stuff, I've had some, um, I've had some like unsolicited manuscripts come in, and one manuscript that I'm actually like will be the next book that I'm I'm working through right now, um, which 
is uh, it's a it's a weird place to be to like read poetry uh, to read other people's poetry in a like a critical way because like when I read Oliver or Charles Wright I'm not looking and be like oh this line could be cut um, or like this stanza might need to be tightened but when I'm reading stuff from my press there there is very much a like I'm enjoying it but there is this like I that I have that I feel like I have to have which um, as as a managing editor of a literary magazine I imagine mm-hmm. that you probably experience <laughs> that yourself too that there is this like there is a, I don't, it's just a different relationship that you have to the work that you, that you're seeing or the poetry that you're seeing versus like, I'm going, I'm reading this out of pure enjoyment versus like, I'm reading this because there are things about it that I might need to like tweak or, you know, like tighten or suggest at some point in the future. Um, yeah. It's really cool sitting on the opposite side of the editorial process occasionally. <laughs> it's kind of good for your soul, I think, because you're like not being crushed by someone else's judgment. <laughs> you're crushing. No, I'm just kidding. But you you can see how neutral it is. Like you don't hate people's well, sometimes you do, but like you don't hate people's work. You just like are trying to work with it or it's just not quite right and it makes you feel a little different about all the rejection that you face as a writer. Yes, I and I I, I've been trying, like, as being on the sort of, like, the critique side of the editorial process, um, I've, I've tried to view the rejections that I've had, um, as, like, in the light of it's either not quite there yet or it's just, it's not the right fit for this thing, um, which I think is one of, like, the, can be the most like uplifting rejection, but also kind of like the shittiest because you're like, oh, it's it's good enough. It would have been mm-hmm. published if it was just you know, just not in this particular category. If it was in this other category, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I I think that that's one of the shittiest things about being an editor is having to like to have a have a manuscript or have a, have like some work that you're like, this is really good. But I'm not going to publish it. Just, uh, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> fuck. Yeah. But, I don't know. It's, I, in order to try to, to stave off having to do that a whole lot, I've, I've recently closed the, like, open submission period for the press just because, like, I don't want to fucking have to deal with, you know, like, 20 mm-hmm. or some odd manuscripts and, like, I might reject every single one of them and I don't like I don't I don't like feeling there's there's some of them that I'm like this is like very obviously not the vibe that I'm going for but there are other ones that I'm like I just I'm not like this doesn't make me excited and I'm like that's a really like I'm sorry it's a shitty really subjective like judgment <laughs> that I'm passing down but that's that's kind of where I am right now and like ugh. I don't know. Well, makes... that's okay. Being an editor is subjective. Yeah. I mean, that's I think perfectly fine. And if you and if you admit that, that makes it not personal, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, yes, that it's it's personal, like on your side, but not personal on mm-hmm. like on their Towards side. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Just there are times that I like I come away from. There, there have been some rejections that I've sent out that like I don't feel 
good about, but I'm like, okay, yeah, this is this is handled like okay, this is this is okay. And other ones that I come away from that for really no reason that I can that I can pinpoint that I just am like, oh, I feel just like ugh. Like, just, ugh, this is, ugh. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, but that's, that's, what's on my, that's what's on my plate right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think that'll probably do it. Um, thank you so much for, for talking thank with you. me. This is, this is a really, really fun way to spend a couple hours on a Saturday. Yeah, thank you. It was fun for me, too. It was really nice to talk to you. You, too. Um, if and you, you should submit to Iron Horse. <laughs> I was when I was when I was doing like um, submit to our news flash. Ooh, wait, what is every? You can see you can check our website, but news flashes. We're asking you to write about things that have recently been in the news, and we publish. We have a very quick turnaround. Like we'll publish on our our website like a week after you submit it to us because oh, wow. we're trying to we're trying to publish timely poetry and and prose. So. But you should submit to our general reading, but also to Newsflash for sure, because we need good submissions for that. Yeah, I will. I will see if. I mean, I listen to NPR at the shop pretty much every day, so I. Nothing yet has has kicked off a poem, but I will. I will keep my ears out for it. Um, do you have anything you want to? Any parting words you want to leave with, with the listeners or? No, I just want to thank people for listening. I mean, everybody who consumes poetry in any form is, you know, just uh, somebody that I'm very grateful for. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, all right, folks. Um, I'll talk to you all later.